Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary Shirley and we're on the Compliance Podcast Network. Today, our special guest is Amy Mertz-Brown, who is Chief Compliance Officer at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Amy, welcome. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get to being the CCO of the SEC? Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, I've been at the SEC for about a year now, and uh, before that, I helped build in-house legal department and the ethics and compliance program at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And before that, I spent many years managing and serving as in-house counsel um, at the U.S. Department of the Treasury and Small Business Administration. So I've been on the inside of quite a number of federal finance and regulatory agencies over over my career, Mm -hmm. all of which ultimately led me to the SEC. And in my current role, I'm focused more on ethics and compliance and less on in-house legal work. And uh, my team plays a large role in maintaining the ethical culture here at SEC. Wonderful. Thank you. Dear listener, I wanted to explain to you a little bit about how Amy came to be on the podcast today. So a while back, I was scrolling through LinkedIn, as I'm prone to do, and I saw Uh, a post put up by the Chief Compliance Officer of the SEC um, showcasing and sharing our podcast and saying wonderful things about it. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, um, here is this very important woman, um, and she's a fan of the Great Woman in Compliance podcast. Oh, I'm wondering if she'll be willing to connect with me. And uh, we have a mutual friend as well, Ellen Hunt. And luckily for me, um, Amy is a wonderful woman and indeed agreed to connect with me. And that's how she came to be on the podcast today. So, Amy, I'm so thrilled to have you and thank you for not only being a fan, but um, for for sharing the podcast with your network. It was a really great day for, for Lisa and me when that happened. Oh, thank you. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> it's my pleasure. <laughs> So, Amy, you're the head of compliance for one of the authorities that tells the rest of us whether our compliance programs are up to scratch or not. Do you feel an additional sense of pressure to always get it right and have a role model compliance program for others? Well, in all of my roles over the years, um, a key part of my job has been to promote ethics and compliance within my own agency. And the fundamental principle of the federal government is that we serve the public interest. We have an obligation to conduct ourselves in a manner designed to promote the public's trust in what we're doing, to make sure that that their taxpayer dollars are well spent, that, you know, we're putting their interests above our own personal interests, and we're operating with their best interests in mind. And so that's a, you know, significant sort of fundamental theme for the ethics and compliance program within a federal agency. And I can say in my 30 years of experience working in the federal government that the vast majority of employees are keenly aware of this imperative and work really very hard to meet it. And I would say that working for a regulatory oversight agency like the SEC now and the CSPB before that, 
creates an even higher, uh, greater and heightened awareness of that public trust concept. Yeah. And we, we, we really feel that duty to the public in general, as all federal employees do, but also perhaps more so to the entities that we regulate to conduct ourselves consistently with that high standard of integrity. And as the chief compliance officer for the SEC, I, I lead my team toward a goal of achieving, you know, model, a model federal government ethics and compliance program. Wonderful. Well, I know that the SEC is in really good hands with you at the helm of their compliance program. <laughs> what are some of the unique aspects of a compliance program for a regulator that some of us in uh, regular companies might not have? Yeah, well, the, the, the scope of the laws that we have to enforce internally in our ethics and compliance program are quite a bit different in many respects than what a companies would cover. Um, there's also some common themes, though, and that's what I've really been interested in learning a lot more about the last few years. Um, themes like working internally within our organizations to encourage compliance and ethical decision-making up front to prevent problems from arising, educating and training our employees, counseling employees who have questions or need guidance on various issues that we cover, and also things like reviewing financial reports that um, employees file. Um, and so, so there's like one set of laws that I think is um, something that a federal agency has that c companies generally don't. And that's about um, federal financial um, conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. For example, a federal employee is prohibited from working on a matter um, involving a particular entity while that uh, employee has a financial interest in that entity, which would even include seeking a job from that entity. So right. if I'm seeking a job with company A, I can't work on any matters at my agency to affect company A. Um, and, I, and I think that's something a bit unusual. So we do a lot of work when um, folks come into the federal government from outside who this is somewhat of a foreign and unusual concept for them, you know, and we really have to educate people from the ground up on those kinds of issues. Um, and then there's some other similar laws, like, for example, anti-bribery laws and um, rules that prevent an employee from accepting a gift from somebody who's seeking to do business with the organization, things of that nature. Those are, those are more similar kinds of rules. Awesome. That's interesting. And um, though, the, of course, the broader conflicts of interest topic is familiar to all of us, I'm sure it was interesting hearing it from your perspective. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. You've got experience building and implementing technology projects. What are some of your lessons learned from technology implementations? Well, I would say, you know, technology implementation projects have a bad reputation, you know, kind of like construction projects. They're always coming in late <laughs> and over budget. <laughs> yeah, and guilty. The key, yeah, the key is, is, to, is to, you know, at the beginning to not consider those outcomes to be inevitable. Um, and work instead as hard as you can to keep the project on track and on budget. Mm -hmm. um, and as, you know, as a program manager who's worked with others on IT projects, I'm certainly not an IT professional myself. You know, we have to depend on others to make that happen. And some of the key lessons I've learned is, uh, one is the key one is to develop a good working relationship with the IT professionals on your project. Mm -hmm. Treating them as partners with a common goal, you know, letting them know that you both respect and defer to their expertise. Right. And also, 
also that you are closely monitoring their progress on your project <laughs> and you're going to hold them to the out, uh, the timeline they set, you know, because I think that sometimes there's a tendency to say, well, it's our projection, but it's not, you know, we're not committing to it. And so, you know, holding them to the timeline and, and asking questions about what they're doing, you know, when is it going to happen, showing a deep level of interest and attention to the details. I think those things go a long way to keeping things on track. And um, also, I say, I, I want to know what the lingo is. So, you know, they, they like to use techn- technological or technology lingo. And I, I want to understand what they're saying. And I've, I've kind of shocked people by saying, do you guys have like a key or a code, you know, decipher for all the codes you use and the, and the, and the acronyms you use? And they look at me like, hmm, nobody's ever asked me that before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's a way to try to speak their language, you know? Right. Um, and then another lesson that I've learned is, is to try to find somebody who can serve as what I, I call like an interpreter between the IT people and you as a program manager, somebody who can understand both objectives mm-hmm. and goals and be able to just kind of talk between them and translate for them for each side. And that, that's really helpful. Wonderful. And um, something that we've done uh, internally within our compliance department is re- rely very heavily on our operational excellence team and their um, certified project managers internally who are really great liaisons for that last role that you just mentioned about having people who are familiar with tech implementations, maybe they're for other groups outside of compliance, but they're better positioned to not only understand, of course, the the wider idea of managing a project, which those of us who are compliance officers um, may get the general principles of, but perhaps aren't so skilled in, um, but also they're more familiar with having been the liaison and translator, if you will, between the IT side, the business side, and any other relevant stakeholders. So I, I love that tip. Yeah, absolutely. SEC has that also, and, and I definitely use that uh, resource as well. Wonderful. And why is incorporating a data analytics function important to you? Well, I think data analytics are, are super important, and it's it's an exciting new aspect of program management for me. For years, I've been collecting data to show, you know, what our program is doing, the fact that it's doing what it's supposed to do, and what quantity and by when. And these are, of course, very important um, aspects of program management and help you ask for more resources and, and you know, uh, figure out where you need to allocate your resources. But I'm, I'm hopeful that data analytics can take that data to another level and allow us to see trends and strengths and, weak, uh, strengths and, and weaknesses in our program, um, which we can then use to target our resources more effectively. Uh, for example, if we can drill into our data to see maybe two circumstances or criteria that happen frequently together, and when they do, they, they're much more likely to produce a certain risk, a risky outcome then we can look for those the situations where those two criteria occur together and maybe target just-in-time training or um, change of a system or a process to try to alleviate that risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of us, we have a good intuitive sense just from, you know, working with our programs over many years. We kind of have an intuitive sense of these things already, but I right. think the data will help us prove it and is more persuasive, especially to higher-level decision-makers in terms of, um, explaining what the program's doing and, and, and why and what, what additional resources we may need. I couldn't agree with you more. As a touchy-feely person who likes to tell 
the business, my peers, my boss, how I'm feeling about a, a certain thing. And sometimes, I, you know, the, the intuition or my observations um, or insights are in fact correct. Um, understanding that not everyone around you is uh, necessarily designed to just trust your views uh, if you don't have a track record with them or um, is touchy-feely also. Uh, having um, hard numbers behind your uh, propositions really help your case no matter what you're trying to persuade someone of. Mm -hmm. And th those two don't have to be mutually exclusive. You know, you can, right. you can teach them to trust your gut by showing them that the data also supports your gut. And, and so you can validate your own gut instinct um, and and elevate that too, you know, because it's, it's a it's a valid measure too, in my view. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that's great. I love that. Thank you for that. You helped to build an ethics and compliance program at a startup federal agency. What were some of the highlights and challenges of that experience for you? Well, it really was one of the highlights of my career to date. And I think the main highlight for me was the opportunity to bring all of my experience and my expertise from, you know, many years before that to a new organization and build really a model program in both the legal as well as the ethics and compliance arenas. I felt like I got to be an entrepreneur um, with, the, right. you know, within a government agency, which is kind of a unique experience. Mm -hmm. And I started out my career at the Small Business Administration, working with and supporting um, and being super energized by entrepreneurs. And this was a great way to kind of come full circle and experience some of that same energy firsthand. Um, I would say the challenge during the first couple of years was really in just determining to uh, trying to figure out what to build first, you know, because you've got a small number of people, you have an enormous project in front of you, and what do you do first? And you kind of have to do everything at one time, but then you can't do everything at one time. So you have to do, do some kind of prioritizing. Um, and, and of course, all the while, while we're rapidly scaling up our programs and scaling up in staff, you know, so everything's changing day to day as to what the priorities are. And I think um, we decided that our first order of business at that time was to really vet every incoming member of our executive team and um, vet them for ethics and conflicts of interest and, and, you know, inform them about their expectations. We also trained every incoming employee and we collected financial disclosure reports from them. And I think the, the reason that we chose that really first was because um, that really set the bench, the, the mark high right up front on expectations for integrity and ethical conduct and, and set the culture of the place really at the very beginning because we felt that everything else was built on that. Um, and then as we went on, you know, we built all the internal controls and the systems and policies and procedures and all that to support the program, uh, the programs we were creating. Right. Um, it was funny, someone just asked me earlier in the week, what did I see as being the biggest challenge for a compliance officer starting out in a role where basically they've got carte blanche to start from the beginning and build something from the ground up? And I said, I think it is the, the risk, and it's not a, a risk in terms of the true legal and compliance sense, but more the, the risk to your own kind of personal sanity of wa wanting to do everything and understanding what there is that needs to be done and then killing yourself over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. 
that that first year, I I I, I remember uh, going home from my you know eight, ten hour day and then mm. walking back onto the computer for three or four more hours at night and, mm. um, and not too many federal employees do that. But it was you know it's it it really did feel like a startup. It was a startup, and mm. so that was that was uh, a challenge. And then of course, as you suggest, you know at some point that becomes unsustainable. <laughs> and what what was um, what was it for you that helped you pull back from that urge to to want to do it all all at once and and achieve everything immediately how did you self-talk um (laughs) out of that yeah well I think it was a combination of finally having enough colleagues to really not have to do Mm -hmm. that so much anymore and 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 a comfort level with the pace the pace of of our ability to implement things slowing down somewhat um, and I, and I remember that the, the, the true kind of breaking point was when, um, we had a new manager coming on to the team, like in the next month, but before that we had our performance cycle was ending and I had to write the performance write-ups for like 20 people. And I had to stay up all night, which I haven't done since I was, you know, in law school. And I said, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. I'm not, right. not going to do this. <laughs> so that was, that was where, that was when I turned the corner. And I think that was about a year and a half, two years in. Mm-hmm. So that's about how long it took me to, to get to decide I couldn't, I couldn't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you came out the other end. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure did. You've got a lot of experience hiring for and managing large legal and compliance teams. And um, in particular, I know that you value having diverse teams. How do you go about ensuring that your teams are truly diverse? Yeah, well, I, I this is a, a topic near and dear to my heart. And I would say a key point I wanted to make up front mm-hmm. is what I consider diverse, diversity. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is a broad range of characteristics and, and personal identifiers, you know, everything from racial and ethnic diversity to diversity in work experiences like military background or working in a financial institution, things like um, educational background, um, geographic background, like an upbringing in the Midwest versus Puerto Rico versus the foreign country. And all of these sorts of things bring different perspectives to the table. And I think sometimes people have a very narrow view of what that, what that means. Um, and I place a huge emphasis on the hiring process when I'm lucky enough to have positions to fill. Agreed. Um, and that's an excellent time to assure that you're, ac- you're accessing a, a diverse group of candidates. Mm-hmm. And I would say the things that I've done is um, make sure that you cast a wide net when seeking applicants. You want the broadest range of applicants possible feeding into that pipeline for that job and seeking out referrals from people outside your own network. So mm-hmm. asking people that are different from you to seek out their own referral sources and networks to, to find candidates. Um, and then depending on the, the role and the level of the role that you're hiring for, maybe take a bit of a grain of salt, um, take with a, a grain of salt the form and polish of the resumes that you get. You know, for junior positions, you're you're looking at people, in my case, uh, hiring for lawyers mostly, right. you know, maybe uh, folks with a year or two out of law school, and they're not very polished yet. Mm-hmm. And I've read thousands of resumes and interviewed probably several hundred people for jobs, both on my own team and mm-hmm. for others in my organization. And I've seen a wide range in quality um, in both resumes and in interviewing skills. And 
Um, so, you know, kind of take it with a grain of salt and don't have this bar that, that would, that would leave out intriguing candidates, you know, interview a few more than you would, than you might think you should so that you can try to get a broader view. And then, um, I think the questions asked during interviewing are really important and, um, a common set of questions is is a good idea for some sort of base, base level setting. And then um, the questions based on real life situations that might come up um, yeah. in, on the job. And then there's a, a question that I usually try to ask that uh, a type of question that will sort of neutralize your, your personality, the span of personality differences, you know, like the braggadocios and the overly modest people and try mm-hmm. to find a question that can level that out so that you really get um, some more insights about the person's own work style or personality. Um, and then I think that all levels of the screening process should include a diverse group of people from your organization. So it's not just people that, you know, one, one type of person or just one person, um, cause that brings perspective, uh, diverse perspective to the, to the screening process too. And then, once people join the team, I, I think you have to add inclusion to the mix so it becomes diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. because, you know, what, after all, what's the point of working so hard to get the diverse right. team if you don't take advantage of their diverse perspectives when mm-hmm. we get there? Mm-hmm. And what that means is is just fostering an environment on my team where every, everyone is, you know, welcomed and encouraged to offer their ideas and their input and bring up challenges, which is even harder than bringing up ideas, and then brainstorming solutions. And sometimes you really have to pull that out of people. It's almost right. like some people can't believe you really do want to hear what their ideas and what they have to say. And sometimes that means you have to be quiet or um, ask them pointedly, what do you think? And, you know, that type of thing. But over time, they, they generally get used to it. <laughs> and then I've seen other folks that if you, if you don't work hard at that, then you're very likely to lose all the diverse people you've worked so hard mm-hmm. to bring it. That's such a great point. Yeah. Amy, um, managing can be difficult at times. What are your top tips for managing particularly difficult staff? For example, toxic individuals who uh, decrease morale or bully others in ways that are maybe not obvious enough to incur disciplinary action but who appear to have a detrimental impact on the well-being of the team. How do you uh, deal with this? What are your best tips? Yeah, boy. Um, my, my very first management job I had over 20 years ago now was probably my most difficult in this regard. I, I sort of inherited a, a few tough individuals, both on my team and, and among my um, of clients, actually. Mm-hmm. And my top tips looking back at that is really to do everything in your power not to get into a power dynamic with mm-hmm. a toxic individual. Um, it's very easy to get sucked into that, and it takes a lot of self-awareness and self-control to stay above the fray. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found at that time having good mentors and trusted advisors to serve as my sounding board, um, or even to just buck up my spirits, you know, really helped a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I, I, I learned is to, is to really keep the focus, the spotlight on the toxic individual and not on you or anyone else on the team who's not contributing so that there's no place for that person to hide mm-hmm. and, also so that others don't become part of the problem because, you know, an outsider coming in looking at the situation or even a boss above you is going to say, well, hmm, they're trying to be fair and take look at all sides, right? So if you can keep the spotlight 
focus on the person who's really the problem and maintain your equilibrium and sense of purpose at all times, then you won't get sucked into that. Um, and that, that was very effective with that first job I had. And then, of course, if none of that works, you know, look into finding another place for that team member so that they might have a better experience working somewhere else. Great. Good, good advice there. I appreciated all of those um, different avenues for exploring all the options. Thanks, Amy. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, that's all the, the time we have today with Amy. For all of our Harry Potter fans out there with some great women in compliance of tomorrow, young ladies in your lives, I've got some good news for you. There's a newly released picture book on the girls who left their mark in the wizarding world entitled Calling All Witches. What an awesome way to start them young with the idea that leading ladies can be incredibly powerful and influential. And perhaps you might even consider the Great One in Compliance podcast as a little lullaby before your babies go to sleep. Have a wonderful uh, day ahead and uh, until next time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review. 